For your awards consideration, Max presents The Last of Us, the HBO original series starring Pedro Pascal as Joel, a hardened survivor hired to smuggle Ellie, a 14-year-old girl, out of an impressive quarantine zone. What starts as a small job soon becomes a brutal and heartbreaking journey as they both must traverse the U.S. and depend on each other for survival. Don't miss the critically acclaimed series IndieWire calls Astounding and Poignant. All episodes of The Last of Us are now streaming on Max. On this episode of Crew Call, we're talking with Leslie Linka-Gladder, the executive producer and director of HBO's series Love and Death. As we go into the last episode, and again, she, as we know, she's about to take the stand, Candy. Right, right. Just, you know, when you were reading those Texas Monthly articles and you were diving into the project, yeah. all I want to say is, how shocked were you after after reading everything? So I was sent the two articles, first of all, and I read them immediately and I was stunned. I was like, if this was not true, you could not make it up. It is definitely a situation where real life is way, way stranger than fiction. And of course I had to, I knew it was true, but I had to double check that because the circumstances around every aspect of the story, again, if it wasn't true, you, you couldn't and wouldn't make that up. And it, it was true. And of course, with that in mind, I was, I was a goner. You know, I had to tell this story and fortunately David E. Kelly was sent the material around the same time and we had, we had been wanting to work together forever and believe it or not, never had. Yes, it's true. Somehow in our, both of our crazy careers, our paths had not crossed and I can tell you it was a wonderful partnership. How does it speak to now? Okay, so what I think this story is really about, it is not for me just a true crime story. In fact, I don't even know if I'm such a true crime kind of gal. What interests me about the story, it's, it's almost like it's about the cracks in the American dream the dark side of the American dream. And, you know, I've been making stories about complicated, layered, complex female characters for a long time, and men too. Yeah. But what I was so interested in this story is the fact that here you have these young women, you know, they're, they get married at 20, they have their two kids, they have well-providing, you know, good-natured husbands, they move to the suburbs, they have a lovely community in and around the church, very safe. In fact, they were a little out of step with the time, living in small-town America. Why is it that there is a hole and a, a gap in their hearts and psyches and spirits that is just a mile wide? Yeah, and that's what interested me about the story. Now, there was two competing projects. Hulu had one and HBO had one. Was there ever any concern? Well, first of all, we were two months into filming when we found out that the Hulu project was going forward. So we had optioned the rights to the two Texas Monthly articles, to the nonfiction book, evidence of love. So we kind of in our naivete thought we were somewhat protected. 
Yeah. And obviously, that's not true. This is a public domain story. So we we were incredibly surprised hearing about this on the set already two months into filming. So, you know, we had already been very clear about the kind of story we wanted to tell. We were filming in Texas, which to me was really important for a Texas story. One doesn't always have the luxury to do that, but you know, this is the first time having been born, having been a New Yorker who grew up in Texas, I really felt it was important to shoot there because there's something about the visuals, about on the surface, it's all so bucolic and beautiful and wide open spaces and big dreams, big America, big thoughts, big land, juxtaposed to what's going on underneath. So that was really exciting. We had an amazing, uh, well, first of all, our cast is like a dream team, and our Texas cast was incredible. So it was it was exciting to marry those two things together. Tell me about that Murderer's Row cast. Do you, <laughs> you know, as the director and executive producer, do you have a do you have a big say along with David in regards to? Yeah, we we need to get Elizabeth Olsen. Yes, we need to get Lily. Yes. So that, you know, the way David and I work together, which to me is the best it gets, he's the writing showrunner and I'm the directing showrunner. And we are partners every step of the way. And that's how I think it should be. That's to me the best possible scenario. So, you know, we developed the project together, we pitched it together. And when we started, David went off and wrote the first three hours and uh, when we started talking about casting, she was the first person that I thought about. And I brought it up to him. He goes, oh my God, that's a great idea. You know, so we sent it to her. We all got on a Zoom together. And that that was kind of that. You know something? She is just amazing in this. And it reminds me a lot, if not more than you know, her sublime performance in Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. Here's my, I mean, the reaction shots that you get of her. Talk about working with her. Now, here's the thing. She played another mom in peril in WandaVision, but that's yeah. a completely oh. different thing. Completely different thing. And they did approach they didn't just approach it like a superhero. I know Jack Shaper approached the you know the psychology and the in the um and the in the stress that that Wanda goes through, but this is completely different. And I'm just wondering how did you get that performance out of her? Well, what did she, you talk about? Oh my God! Well, first of all, Lizzie is an extraordinary human and an extraordinary actress. She has a level of subtlety and skill and complexity. And she just will go to a very deep place. She is fearless in the best possible way. So for a director, it's it's a dream. And obviously we talked a lot, but I certainly wanted to give her the freedom to go to those places and then shape. And she was always willing to go there. I mean, more than that. And there's something about her eyes and the way she lets you go in there, you know, to help us understand something about the human condition, however 
complicated it is. And it is. I mean, candy is so many different colors, you know, and, you know, there are times that I would watch her and I would feel anxious while I'm laughing. You know, I would feel nervous for her and, you know, it, it, it was thrilling to watch. I mean, her with Jesse Plemons, please, you know, uh, and and Lily, Lily Rabe, the whole cast, Tom Pelfrey, Patrick Fugit. I mean, it was joyful. The first scenes we shot, which I think really made a difference in bringing the cast together, was we shot all the things about community. We shot all the church scenes and the picnics and the choir and the singing because it felt to me when you're going to look at a community you want to build the community and to feel like there are real relationships here and people who know each other and care about each other before you start tearing it apart which is unfortunately what happened in this story i love it so so instead of shooting it episode by episode each oh. script you just you did that wow well, now this, we have, remember we it's a seven hour series or novel or whatever you want to call it and we we cross-boarded the first four hours so it was like doing a you know two movies back to back now how did you select the first four episodes I mean, it, I mean, you're establishing tone here. That's the key. Yes, That's a key yes. thing. You're teeing us Very up true. into yes. the murder. And, and that was one of the things that both terrified me and excited me about this project, that in some way it's like three separate shows in one. You know, the, um, the beginning and setting up the world and the community and getting to know these characters and the beginning of the affair, which again is the most bizarre affair ever. Like I have never heard of an affair where people talk about the affair for like three months. It's the most unsexy beginning of an affair ever. Like, you know, and there's that great moment when Lizzie says to him, you know, you better sleep with me because my expectations of you and bed are going to be just huge. And he's like, yeah, that's what I'm worried about. But I think Alan would have gone on talking about it for months, you know, and this, the thing about the affair or even like writing the butcher paper of do's and don'ts, that's all from the book. That list is actually the list that they wrote up. Uh, and, it, it felt very juvenile in some way. The really, it almost felt like a high school, you know, first love affair in some way. And, and yet, of course, they are having an, you know, adulterous relationship. But it's really more they wanted to be seen and heard. They wanted a friend, someone that really saw them. And they, they weren't having that in their own relationships. So it, it's, a, a not a normal affair in that way. And of course, she didn't pick the town hottie, you know, <laughs> had that affair with, which is very much from the true story, you know. <laughs> 
For your awards consideration, Max presents The Last of Us, the HBO original series starring Pedro Pascal as Joel, a hardened survivor hired to smuggle Ellie, a 14-year-old girl, out of an impressive quarantine zone. What starts as a small job soon becomes a brutal and heartbreaking journey as they both must traverse the U.S. and depend on each other for survival. Don't miss the critically acclaimed series IndieWire calls Astounding and Poignant. All episodes of The Last of Us are now streaming on Max. Now, leading into that murder, I mean, I mean, you do it so wonderfully. We see Candy get angry in one instance with with Alan, and then Betty just shows her true colors. Tell me about that unraveling, Mm -hmm. because it's like, because when it happens, it's so earned. Oh, thank you for that. That means a lot. So, so I think it was important to set in with Candy, though on the surface, she's the bell of the ball. You know, she is the queen bee, you know, at church. Yet there's something brewing there. There's that hole, there's that disconnect, that, that dissatisfaction. And you see that pop out when Alan and Candy are meeting at the diner of like, no, 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 don't you ever shush me. You know, there's something going on there. She doesn't want to be second. You know, she doesn't know how to be second. And I think I think it profoundly hurt her as well. You know, I think there's so much more going on with her than meets the eye as far as being a character. And I love Betty. I mean, what Lily did in terms of the complication of Betty, and we talked about this a lot, You again, armchair therapy. You know, I am not a therapist. I have no degree. I, I did do a lot of reading about bipolar disorder from working on Homeland for many years. And uh, I, I would say that Betty could be undiagnosed bipolar. You know, she was like the party girl up until like 19. And then something shifted, something I would say shifted chemically. And, you know, what is very common with someone who has depression or bipolar is that they can be so much fun one day, you know, and then the next day they can be filled with, with anxiety and angst. And I think Betty was that. And I think in many ways, Alan had to be on eggshells with her. And, and, you know, that came first to be sure that Betty was going to be okay. And I never, in something like this, she was the victim. You know, only one person came out of this one. And we only know it from the point of view of the person who survived, which colors everything. So, you know, she was a complicated lady. Now... Are some of them still alive? And did you access, did, you know, like, I know like during uh, OJ, when Ryan Murphy was doing that, I I don't, I I think the actors for the most part, you know, it's always a creative decision on their end. Sometimes they like to have access to their subjects and sometimes they do not, you know, they just like to go strictly by the script and not have, not have uh, their source their right. source character kind of get into their process. Right. You know, but were they in, did they have access? This is the deal with Candy. Candy has never given a public interview about this, except 
in the book Evidence of Love, which was all, you know, it was all there in the book. So we did not reach out to her. Actually, I think someone might have reached out and she wasn't interested in discussing and one would never push that. I mean, you have to, I feel like you have to be incredibly respectful to, you know, this is a true story and you want to treat it with respect in every way possible. So um, the who Candy was really came from that whole series of interviews. So it was all her words. And we really tried to stick with the facts of what she said about herself. Now, um, the person that we did have with us during the trial, again, this is like three different sections here, three different uh, parts of the whole. So we have the police procedural in some way and and the kind of discovery of the crime of how it happened. And then we have the court the courtroom drama and which we took so much of it. David took so much of it from the transcript. Um, we did have uh, Don Crowder's actual law partner, Robert Udashin. He was our technical advisor on the set and he was so helpful. He actually said that Tom Pelfrey, who is truly extraordinary, you know, in episodes, you know, five, six, seven, uh, four, five, six, seven, actually, uh, that, uh, that, that Tom did a better job than Don Crowder defending Candy. Well, the interesting thing, as is, is, is pointed out on the show with Crowder, was he was a, he was a personal injury attorney. He never tried a criminal case, and and yet and yet here he is. I, I mean, I thought the show presents him very masterfully. You know. He, he looked like he was a great trial lawyer ah, and, yes. and um, he really held his own in this. The judge, he really sparred with the the judge. Yes. Oh, really? He totally did. He bait him. Yeah. He wow. bait him and thought he was like kind of a press whore. And yeah. very purposely, the judge moved the trial from the new courthouse, which was much smaller, to the old courthouse so it could have like a huge audience. Mm -hmm. The um, Now, are, with the remaining episodes, after you directed the first four, were you still involved with them, like with oh. edits? Oh my God! Yes, I, I, well, I. So I crossboarded the first four. The wonderful Clark Johnson directed five and six, and I came back and directed seven. But I never left. I was editing. I was doing. I was still working all the time. So that gave me a time to start to edit the first four hours. You know, and uh, fortunately, we didn't need to do any reshoots. But you never know when you're doing a period piece that's a limited. Um, so while Clark was directing, and and actually there were numerous days where I actually did shoot during that time because we were shooting at locations, and then I went into the final episode. And how does it work on a limited series like this? Meaning, like you know, like I was talking once with some of the Mad Men actors. Yes. Like, oh my God, you're so method, and how does it work? And they're like. What are you talking about? We don't have time to get into character. It's about get in there, come with your A game, yeah. hit your marks. We're lucky to get a walkthrough, they said. But would you, 
that I mean, but that was like a weekly TV show. That's correct. Little, do you have a little bit more breathing room on a limited yeah. series such as this? Yes. I mean, you still were moving quickly for sure, but we had, we had a, not a lot of rehearsal before we, we started. We had maybe 10 days of rehearsal, you know, a week to 10 days. And then we, you have a little more time. And again, it's like doing a pilot in the beginning. Of course, you're figuring out your world, your characters, how people are interrelating with each other and, you're setting up you're setting up the world so that's very different than you know i had a wonderful time directing mad men but you are slipping into a world that that the 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 some of the big things are already created you know and you have to go in and tell the best story in the best possible way uh but you're not working on the design of the sets or wardrobe or or you know like you do at the beginning of a limited series or film or pilot now the the other thing that i think about literally right in this moment uh, in the middle of our conversation is the cinematography mm. was so gorgeous in this you know it seemed as though you always got and i was wondering if there was a there was a, you know, if there was a meaning to this. Off the top of my head, it felt as though you always had things at, at, at um, sunset. Is that, uh, there? I just remember these gorgeous shots of her driving. Yes. And it would be, you know, like usually after a moment where Candy's head is spinning and it would be not dawn, but close to dawn, like maybe five o'clock in the spring mm -hmm. type of light. Um, well, so again, what was important to me was the juxtaposition. This is a story filled with visual juxtaposition. So, you know, the, the beautiful vistas of the world they're in juxtaposed to what's going on inside Candy's head. And one of the things I loved about her is that in the first three hours, getting in the car, driving and singing was a way that she found joy she found herself and in from four five six that she cannot find that again you have the music but there's uh a, an anxiety and a panic to it so it's how the very same thing can twist and that's what i loved is when you're taking something that you've seen in a certain kind of way and you turn it upside down. So, you know, for me, it's very much about, you know, you have on the surface the perfect white picket fence and lovely house, but you get close to it and the paint is peeling. There's a chip in the beautiful piece of china. It's, it's not what you see on the surface. So to me, it was always playing with those those two elements visually. And did we shoot a lot of those things? Yes, we did, but not exclusively. Sometimes we were shooting in the bright sunlight, like in episode four, when she goes back to the church. Yes, that, that I remember was, very distinctly, yes. That, that yeah. was not lovely. That was, uh, you know, harsh. And, you know, in the, the white light of daylight, there's no place to hide. And yet all she could do was hide. If only she could just wish it away. If only life could be back to normal. And if I just convince myself it is and lie to everyone in my life, I will make it so.
I was surprised at initially how she covered it up so fast because she wasn't, I, I, I mean, that was surprising how she cleaned up. I mean, obviously she didn't clean up the scene of the crime, but how, how she cleaned herself yeah. up and she had an alibi there for, for a little bit. How long, how long was she able to have an alibi before she was discovered? Well, it, she was discovered pretty soon, you know, and she would have been discovered immediately had the, had the police. I mean, the police in Wiley, Texas had never had a crime like this. You know, I don't know if they'd had any murder ever. So, you know, what happened is Candy, I, I don't believe she went over there with any intention of killing Betty. I think had a dozen things happened when that door opened you know, differently, it never would have happened. Had Jenny and Alyssa not wanted a sleepover, if Alyssa didn't have a swim lesson, you know, if Candy had said, I can't come in, you know, I've got to rush to get Father's Day card, I don't believe it would have happened. I think Betty, at some point, some barbecue was always going to get the ass out. <laughs> she definitely, she had been carrying that around. You know, uh -huh. and we, that was a scene where we rehearsed for that big scene between Betty and Candy. We rehearsed that for a long time. That was a long scene that we really needed to parse out in a deep way. And uh, needless to say, as well as shooting what happened in the laundry room, which was probably one of the most intense things I've ever shot in my career. Uh, but that that rehearsal was something we really had to dig in deep in terms of what was going on for Candy and what was going on for, for Betty. Um, but uh, yeah, the way she was able to cover it up, well, for, first of all, I'm going to go back. She was a terrible murderer. Terrible. Like, you don't go and take a shower in the victim's house. Like, you don't do that if you're trying to you know, cover your tracks. She didn't clean up, you know. She left footprints and handprints. Now, the reason they didn't arrest her that night is because the neighbors came in and tracked all over. They actually came in and cleaned up because they didn't want, they didn't want Alan to come and find Betty. Um, the police, they're, they're, the police, like besides the Wiley police, the county police came, everybody came and they tracked all, all the evidence all over the house. You know, people were sitting there drinking coffee. You know, the neighbors all came in. I mean, it was the most compromised crime scene ever. But they did, at the end of the day, after working all night, find a print. And that's how they found her. Before we go, can you tell us what episode you're submitting for the Emmys? Have you decided? Oh my God, David and I had such a long talk about that. And I did submit the last episode, episode seven. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm always like, well, I think you should have submitted episode <laughs> one or think? episode it, four. <laughs> no, I uh, felt that was the one where you juxtapose Lizzie on the stand was so extraordinary. Uh-huh. And being able to go back to that day and see it all through her point of view. I mean, again, it's not like Rashomon, the, one of my favorite old Japanese films, Kurosawa's film, where you see the murder from six different points of view and finally you see it 
from the murdered woman. You see that you hear it from the ghost of the murdered woman. We don't get that. We only see it from one point of view. So I loved the juxtaposition between who Candy became, you know, and back to that particular day. Later yeah. this year, keywords later this year, what do you have in store? What do you have in store? Do you, are you, can you tell, can you share with us yeah. anything that you're prepping? Yes, I am, in fact, prepping in New York, as we speak, uh, a six-hour limited series for Netflix. It's a political thriller. I'm directing all six hours, so it's like doing three movies. <sighs> that was exhausting just saying that. Um, it is an incredible script written by Noah Oppenheim, who wrote the screenplay for Jackie. He was also the president of NBC News for 10 years up to like a couple of months ago. He teamed with Eric Newman, who created Narcos. And the story is also by Michael Schmidt, who's a two-time Pulitzer Prize winning journalist for the New York Times. Really incredible political thriller. And it stars Robert De Niro as the last ex-president who could reach across the aisle. Uh, Angel Bassett is the current president. Uh, it's an amazing cast. Jesse Plemons is back. I'm so thrilled to work with him again. Connie Britton is playing the chief of staff. Um, Joan Allen is playing uh, uh, George Mullins, ex-president George Mullins' wife, De Niro's wife. Uh, and Lizzie Kaplan is their daughter, who is a congresswoman. Excellent, excellent. Leslie Linka-Gladder, executive producer and director of Love and Death. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was so much fun to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.